0: Good morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to preach through an entire book of the Bible. It's certainly not something I've ever done before. So I hope there's no one in a hurry this morning. No one needs to get home quicker to put the dinner on or anything like that. Well, because it's a whole book, I've got a couple of assistants to help me with the reading. So if Angie would like to come up first. She could turn with me to Isaiah. Sorry, that's a mistake in the notes. John's second letter to John.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be in us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us From God the Father And from Jesus Christ the Father's Son In truth and love I rejoice greatly to find some of your children Walking in the truth Just as we were commanded by the Father And now I ask you dear lady Not to have a right to your new commandments But the one we have had from the beginning That we love one another And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandments, just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the <coughs> antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but we may win with a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead, and who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching is the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you.
0: Thanks, Angie. (coughs) She did well. She's very shallow, you know. (laughs) So, it's a very short letter. And even though the writer doesn't identify himself in the letter... (coughs) Tradition holds that it was written by the Apostle John, the disciple who Jesus loved. And of course, he also wrote John's Gospel and John's first letter, which we've been working through with Richard over the last few weeks. But more than the tradition, the themes in the writing style are very similar to those of John the Apostle. There's a strong focus on truth and love, and a strong focus on the importance of following the Lord's commandments to walk in that truth. You could never accuse John of being inconsistent. So a lot of the themes are things that we've already looked at in John's first letter. But I'm going to pick out a couple of details that are specific to this letter, but also look again at some of the things that Richard's already mentioned. Not to undermine Richard's message, but hopefully to support it, I'm looking at it from a different perspective. But let's start by looking at who the letter is addressed to. In verse 1, The elect lady and her children, who I love in truth, so, the elect lady and her children, is that referring to a specific person in the family? Some scholars suggest that it's referring to an actual woman held in high regard or who has a prominent position in the church. Other scholars suggest that it's a personification of a specific congregation with its members referred to as children. Either is possible, but I feel drawn towards the second one. The church is often alluded to as the bride of Christ in the Testament, which fits with describing her as a lady. And also, the word in the original Greek is Kyria. Now, if you know Greek, this is actually the feminine form of the Greek word Kyrios, which means Lord in English. And of course, Jesus is described as Lord all the way through the New Testament. So drawing all that together, the lady in our passage is Kyria, the bride of Kyrios, or Christ. Scholars do disagree on this, but it all fits together nicely for me. And it highlights that the church bride of Christ. I also like the word elect. The elect lady and her children. Because it reminds us that we're chosen by God. We're not just here at random because we happen to be in the right place at the right time to hear the gospel. We were chosen by God. We are his elect. I realise some people here might be believers because they were raised in a Christian family and they've known the gospel from an early age. But that doesn't mean you aren't chosen. We all come to faith by different roots, but we're all chosen by God. Some people have a clear memory of a specific moment when they came to Christ. And other people will be like me, they'll be able to trace the specific individual steps on their journey to faith. But you need to know this, you didn't choose Christ, you were chosen for Him. No matter what your past is. No matter what your background is. You didn't choose Christ. You were chosen for him. So when John writes to the elect lady. Maybe he is just writing to a specific lady. One held in high esteem in the church. But I can't help but be reminded. That we are God's elect. We're chosen to be. We're chosen by God. To be together in Christ. And this should give us great comfort. It gives us hope for the future, whatever our current situation is. God has always worked for the good of those he calls to himself, his elect. And also, the Word of God promises perfect, glorified bodies to those who are in Christ. We're predestined to be justified and conformed to the image of Christ. For now, we might share in suffering, but these promises give us hope and comfort in our suffering. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, according to his purpose. And if none of that gives you hope and comfort, or makes you want to praise God this morning, there's the door, I've got nothing left for you. (laughs) Moving on in the letter, it will come as no surprise that John tells us to love one another. This was a consistent theme in his first letter, and Richard has spoken about it at length already. So just briefly, here's my angle on it. We've all sinned, and that makes us unlovable. It might be an unsophisticated way of describing it, but it's our sin, our capacity to mess things up, that makes us unlovable. But God has dealt with that sin, whether it's in the past, present, or future, through the cross. God accepts us on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. Therefore, as people of God, We ought to accept each other on that same basis. John's first letter told us this and I'll read a short snippet again. This is 1 John 4, 10 to 11. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the attaining sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The cross has dealt with our sin, the unlovableness of every one of us who's put our trust in Christ Jesus. Not just you, not just me. Every one of us. And if we don't believe that, we're denying the power of the cross. And if God loves you in spite of your sin because of the cross, then I'm going to love you as well. So Derek, however much you've sinned, God loved you so much that his son died for you. So I'm going to love you as well. Tony Anderson. However lovable you are.
2: <laughs>
0: Whatever mistakes you've made, Christ loved you enough to die for you, so I'm going to love you as well. Mm. John Metcalf. Sorry John, there's got to be a line somewhere. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, there isn't a line. John, just as he died for me and my sin, Jesus loved you enough to die for you. So I'm going to love you too, whether you like it or not. (laughs) By ourselves, none of us are lovable. But when we recognize that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, when we realize that absolutely none of us are lovable without the cross, even me, then that gives us a completely different perspective. And I know that some people are more lovable than others. I understand that, (laughs) John. But love is more than something we feel, it's something we do. Brothers and sisters, love one another. The Sermon on the Mount tells us that Jesus had a ridiculously high standard of obedience, but he also excessively loved those who fell short of it, and we should do the same. In 1 Corinthians, Paul described the church as being like a body, with different people having different gifts and functions, like different parts of the body. And although we were speaking in a different context, I think we can use the same picture here when we talk about love. And actually one Corinthians, in does go, go on to talk about love. But one part of the body wouldn't hate another part of the body, however different it was. The foot wouldn't hate the hand. The ears wouldn't despise the eyes. There should be no division in the body. We should all have the same care for one another. When one of us is in sorrow, we should all be in sorrow. When one of us rejoices, we should all rejoice. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. However sinful we've been, however unlovable we are, God sees us through the blood of the cross and loves us anyway. We should see each other the same way and love one another. I'll move on now, but we'll come back to love at the end. Next, John goes on to talk about deceivers who have gone out into the world and say that Christ did not come in the flesh. Christ didn't come in the flesh. It's easy to see how this idea was appealing in the first century. Some strands of Greek and Roman thinking held that anything worldly, anything material was evil. Only spiritual things could be good. Earthly things are bad, heavenly things are good. So the idea of a perfect sinless Messiah who came in the flesh was impossible. Jesus must have only appeared to come in the flesh. Flesh was evil. Therefore, Christ must have come as a spiritual being and appeared to be flesh by some sort of illusion or trickery. And that idea was very common in the ancient world. It's a heresy known as Gnosticism, but it also crops up in a number of other heresies like Marcionism and Gnosticism. It was a very Greek idea, and people who held these beliefs often rejected the Old Testament scriptures as well. But what about the Hebrew Jewish perspective? They didn't have those sort of ideas about the nature of the world. But for the Jews, the idea that Christ never came in the flesh had some appeal as well. How could the Messiah be nailed to a cross? It was the vilest, most degrading, humiliating death possible. And from an Old Testament, scriptural, theological point of view, it was awkward as well. Deuteronomy tells us that cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. To their mind, a human Messiah simply couldn't be crucified because it would mean he was cursed. That was inconceivable to their century Jewish thinking. How could the Messiah be cursed by God? But if Jesus was just some sort of spiritual being who didn't come in the flesh, that solved everything for them because the spirit couldn't die on the cross. But scripture is very clear, Jesus did come in the flesh. Whilst he was the son of God, he was also the son of Mary, born in the flesh. In the gospels, he experienced fleshly hunger. (coughs) He got tired, he experienced fleshly fatigue. On the cross, he experienced thirst. The disciples touched him. (coughs) Disciples ate with him. They saw him in agony. They saw him bleed. They saw him crucified. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But more important than any of these things, they saw him die. They saw the Roman soldier put a spear in his side and they saw the blood and water came out. They saw him die, spirits don't die of fleshly and death. And even after the resurrection, they walked with him. They ate with him. They put their fingers in his wings. Jesus came in the flesh. Scripture couldn't be clearer. The word became flesh as well among us. You might be thinking, so what? Does it really matter? Why is it so important? But it does matter. If Jesus was a substitute sacrifice for us, he had to be like us. He had to be flesh, just as we are flesh. A substitute that wasn't human like us wasn't fleshly like us, it wouldn't be a substitute. It would be even less effective than the annual sacrifices that might be Jesus had to be flesh, human flesh, otherwise the cross was worthless. <coughs> but as well as his sacrifice on the cross, there was also the sacrifice life before the cross. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience that Adam failed to live. He was our corporate representative, our corporate head like Adam. But unlike Adam, Jesus didn't fail. Paul explains this in Romans 5. Romans five eighteen and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And this ties in with the cross as well. Jesus wasn't just a substitute sacrifice for us, he was a perfect sacrifice. Obedient, righteous, without blemish of any kind. All the things we were created to be but failed, he's done for us. Because he's like us. The word word became like us, flesh, and dwelt among us. What else? Well, he's the mediator between God and man. We were so separated from God, that we needed someone to come between us and bring us back to him. We needed a mediator who could represent man to God, and also represent God to man. And only one person was ever able to do that. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul tells us, there is one God and one one mediator between God and men, the man Christ, Jesus. And to be that mediator, Jesus was and is God and 100% man. He's also our example and pattern in life. I was a bit hesitant to talk about this because for some people that's all Jesus was. They say he was a great teacher and a good man, maybe a bit of a prophet as well, but that's all he was. I need to tell you, you need to know that he was all those things, but I don't need to tell you that he was more than just that. In his first letter, John tells us that anyone who abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way he walked. Paul tells us we're continually being changed into the likeness of Christ, and that God saved us so that we may be conformed to his image. Peter wrote that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. How would this be possible if he only came as a spirit without a body? It only makes sense if he came in the flesh. Best of all, he's not just an example and pattern for life now. He's also an example and pattern of the life to come. First Corinthians 15 tells us that he died as a man in the flesh, but rose on the third day and set the pattern of the resurrection for us. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus came in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if we suggest he didn't, then all these things... Every hope we hold just as The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Getting back to our passage today, and with all that in mind, there's no surprise that John is so angry about anyone who brings that sort of teaching. His instructions are don't welcome them into your house, or even give them any greeting, or else you're taking part in his wicked works. Don't welcome them into your house. I often wonder what that verse means for us in the modern world. Does it mean we shouldn't let Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons into our home if they knock on the door? Or does it mean something else? Well, If we look at the context of when it was written, how did people communicate? How were new ideas spread? There were no newspapers, there were very few books, no radio, no television, no internet. New religious ideas were only passed by word of mouth, either in public meetings or one-to-one. So if someone was spreading the idea that Jesus never came in the flesh, it would be by coming to your home, or possibly someone else's home, wherever your church community met. Because remember, this is the early church. They wouldn't have buildings like we do nowadays. So if we transfer this to a modern context, when John talks about welcoming this false teaching into our house, probably means a lot more than it does at face value. It means we need to be guarded against any false teaching or false ideas that might come into our life anywhere. anywhere. Not just those that come into your house, which in John's time would have been the main way that false ideas were spread. For us, we need to be careful about what newspapers and magazines we read. We need to be careful about what books we read, what we're watching on TV, what do we look at on the internet? I find increasingly that I'll often look, pick up an interesting looking book, maybe even at the One event or in a Christian bookshop, and find it has some very strange ideas about Jesus in the church. I've read some bizarre interpretations of scripture in some books I've read. We need to be discerning. We need to hold fast to what we heard from the beginning. And that's a general principle. Even though in this letter, John is speaking about a specific problem affecting the church. It's a general principle worth emphasizing. What messages are you inviting into your home? I've noticed that over the last few years, that television seems to increasingly be about rejoicing in people not getting on with each other. It's that Big Brother program that seems to deliberately put people together in the house and watch them fall out with each other. In other I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, that seems a bit similar. I often make fun of myself for enjoying the Carriage to show, but the essence of that program is finding entertainment, people not getting along with each other when they should. I've stopped watching it since I realised that what I was finding entertaining entertainment was incredibly negative. Neighbours from Hell, there's another one that's more of the same. Does anyone watch that Church Rinder program? <laughs> Shame on you. Thank <laughs> a And although these programmes are all about us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're still dangerous because they normalise that sort of behaviour. We might not be aware of it, but if we routinely watch that sort of television, we risk that behaviour becoming ordinary and accessible in our own lives. And that's unhelpful at best when it comes to a life of loving our brothers and sisters. Magazines and newspapers are no better, and seem to love reporting on disputes between sports people, celebrities and politicians. And it's so widespread, that it's easy to get drawn into that way of thinking without realising. Even if we don't watch that stuff, the people that we work with talk about it all the time, and it's hard not to get drawn in. We need to be aware of how what we read, what we watch, and what we listen to affects us. Or even better, don't watch it at all. As John tells us in his letter, don't welcome these things into your house. Hold fast to what you heard from the beginning brothers and sisters. Love one another. I'm going to stop there. Um, Marie's going to read us Paul's words about love in 1 Corinthians 13 before we close with the song. But before we do that, let's just pause for a moment and reflect for a little while on John's words. Let's think about how we don't just happen to be here. We've been chosen by God to be His bride, the Church. We are His elect, chosen by the living God to be His children. And let's think about how we live in that through our relationships with each other. How the price for the sins of every one of us has been paid by the blood of Jesus, so that we can all be one together in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's love one another. Let's just close our eyes and reflect on these things for a minute or two.
2: If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels that have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But for we know in part and we prophesy, but for now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child.